Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The FT. Mansion taxes. How would they work and who would be affected? the marshmallow test, and other ways that psychology and behavioural finance can be used in investment. And why changes to intestacy laws make it more important than ever that you keep your will up to date. Welcome to The Money Show, one of the FT's most popular podcasts. I'm Jonathan Ely and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form. With the help of my FT colleagues, James Pickford. Hello. And Adam Palin. Hello. Plus a special studio guest, Greg Davis at Barclays Wealth. Hello. At the Labour Party conference this week, Ed Miliband confirmed that, if elected, the party would introduce a mansion tax on homes worth more than £2 million in order to help fund improvements in public services, primarily the NHS. Such proposals are not new. Liberal Democrats have long advocated such a levy, and Labour has always been receptive to the idea. Some critics say that it is a little more than a raid on the better off, driven more by envy than anything else. Others argue that it would be complicated, arbitrary, hard to collect and would risk penalising those who are asset rich but cash poor, typically those who bought houses in what are now very popular areas long ago and have yet to derive any tangible benefit from the increase in their prices. James Pickford has been looking at the arguments for and against. James, do we actually have much detail on how this tax will be implemented if indeed the Labour Party is elected? Well, we have very little detail over and above the threshold of £2 million uh, which they have set on this mansion tax. But what we do know is that Labour expects to raise uh, £1.2 billion from it. Other estimates, uh, we have an estimate of £1.6 billion from uh, the housing website Zoopla. But Labour has been at pains to stress that people who have no income, such as elderly people who inherited their houses or bought their houses many decades ago, that they would be discounted or waived. And um, in response, the Treasury has said that, that this would therefore reduce the take from the tax by £350 million. Now, homes worth that more than this magical £2 million already attract um, additional taxation, don't they? They do. Um, so uh, in transactions uh, of, of homes worth more than £2 million, stamp duty is, is levied at 7%. And also, if one owns a a house worth more than £2 million through a corporate shelter, so it's what's known as an an enveloped dwelling, 
you pay an, an annual tax of £15,400. That applies to houses worth between £2 million and £5 million. So there, there are already property taxes for homes at this level. Now, stamp duty, as you mentioned, is paid at the, at the point of purchase when a property changes hands. And of course, at that juncture, the price is, is known. But who is going to decide what homes are worth for the purpose of mansion taxing? What's to stop me saying, well, my house is worth £1.999 million and therefore I don't have to pay the tax? Well, this is one of the thorniest issues of the whole debate. Uh, at the moment, house values uh, were judged in 1991. This was the last time that the country's houses were valued for the purposes of council tax. And to do so again is a, is a politically difficult task. Uh, there really is no detail yet on how these things would be valued and what measures that would come into play should there be any disputes over the value. Presumably, given the distribution of house prices in the UK, much of the burden of any mansion tax would fall on London and the South East. Do we have any sort of figures on that? Well, absolutely. I mean, there are several estimates, all of them above 90%. Um, the website Zoopla says that 96% of the £2 million mansion tax would be paid by homeowners in London and the South East. London itself would account for 88% of the total, which would be 85,500 homes of 108,000 across the UK as a whole. And these would cost between, between £12,000 and £15,000 a year. Finally, James, we know that the Liberal Democrats are very amenable to additional property taxes. What do we know of Conservative policy in this area? I mean, house prices have gone up an awful lot in the in the past few years, uh, which makes property very attractive from a revenue-raising point of view. Are there any sort of plans lurking in the, in the depths of Conservative central office? David Cameron last year had explicitly ruled out a mansion tax in an interview. What we do know is that uh, the Conservatives are not averse to raising property taxes. Uh, in the budget, uh, we saw George Osborne sharply raise the tax on uh, enveloped dwellings, i.e. Um, property which was owned through a corporate shelter. And in fact, what happened after that, rather than uh, dousing that, that particular side of the market, it went up sharply. They raised quite a, a good deal of money there. So there, there's no particular ideological reason why uh, more property taxes might be raised in different areas. But there, there is a, a commitment not to raise a mansion tax. Thanks very much, James. There's more on the question of mansion taxing in this weekend's FT Money, which is part of the Weekend FT. You can also read online at ft.com forward slash money or on tablet devices using our new web app. Still to come on the show, a surprisingly large number of people die each year in the UK without having made a will, and the rules that dictate how their estates are divided up are changing next week. But first, how would you fare at the marshmallow test? Does the hot part of your brain rule the cold, or vice versa? How's your executive function these days? This might all sound like psychobabble, but investment is as much about psychology as it is about dividend yields and compound interest. Governments use psychology and behavioural finance to help collect taxes, and companies use it to sell you things. The ideas behind behavioural investment and psychology are commanding more attention these days, because earlier this year the government announced reforms to the pension system based on substantial assumptions about human behaviour. 
Allowing people to take all their pension savings as a lump sum, for instance, with only tax at their marginal rate, is in effect a huge punt on people doing the right thing and spending that money carefully. Critics say they will end up with too little and then blow what they've got too quickly. By contrast, automatic enrolment, whereby employers are obliged to sign staff up for pensions, rests on the assumption that we're all feckless and irresponsible and that left to our own devices we wouldn't bother to save for retirement. Now one company that has been using behavioural finance theory for some time is Barclays Wealth, the the part of the high street bank that serves high net worth individuals. Greg Davis is head of behavioural finance there and joins us now. Greg, welcome to the Money Show. First of all, can you explain the marshmallow test and what it tells us? Yes, absolutely. This, I should say, has in its original manifestation nothing to do with finance. The marshmallow test is an experiment that was first conducted several decades ago where small children are put in a room, given one marshmallow, and told that if they cannot eat that marshmallow for the next 15 minutes while sitting in their room on their own, they'll be given two marshmallows. And the test is all around whether or not the child eats the marshmallow. So it's, it's gratification. Can they reason with themselves and say, well, if I hang on a bit, I can get two? It may be reason, it may be innate self-control, but essentially it's the ability to delay gratification in pursuit of larger rewards, which clearly uh, underpins a great deal of the distinction between good and bad financial decision-making. Does the results of the marshmallow test um, mean or imply that some of us are born to be successful investors or successful in life for that matter, uh, while others are doomed to fail because they forever cave in to instant gratification? It does tell us that there are innate differences between us in our very early stage ability to defer gratification. And the interesting result of these marshmallow tests is when those children are followed up several years later, 15 years later, 20 years later, um, that, that, that has huge implications for their success over the rest of their life, their academic success, their comfort, their happiness, their, their well-being. So yes, it does have that implication, but I wouldn't go so far as to say doomed. It tells us that we have inclinations that might lead us to reach out and grab the marshmallow or not, but it doesn't tell us that there there is no hope that we can overcome those inclinations and that there aren't techniques uh, to improve our self-control. So how do you use behavioural psychology in the workplace to help clients achieve better returns? Well, firstly, it's about self-knowledge. It's about using tools to help clients or investors to understand their own behaviour. Are you the sort of person who's more likely to grab the marshmallow or not? And then taking that the next stage by very deliberately on the basis of understanding an individual investor's personality to design portfolios and solutions and ways of communicating with people that provide them with the tools and techniques to steer their decisions more naturally towards good long-term financial decisions as opposed to immediate short-term emotionally driven decisions. And what's in your experience are the three or maybe four most common mistakes made by investors simply because they are human and they have emotions? They all fall under a single framework, I think, which is what we all do. Good financial decision making is about the long term. We don't live in the long term. We live right now. And what all of us do as as investors is we sacrifice long term financial returns in order to purchase emotional comfort right now. And I think the three main ones there. The first two come from 
I sometimes refer to investors as passive-aggressive. We're passive because we're too uncomfortable to put all of our wealth to work. We sit on piles of cash for long periods of time. It is a very expensive way of getting to sleep better at night. And we're, we're aggressive in the passive-aggressive because the money we do put to work, we're overly active with. We're constantly dabbling with it in ways that help us to feel that we're in control, that we've, uh, we're tweaking it to suit the political and economic environment at the time. And most of that tweaking is also costly. The third one I'd, I'd point at is a version of that, um, the version of the overactivity, because what we do is we tend strongly to take on more risk when times are good and less risk when times are bad, because that's what feels comfortable. It would sound silly if I just sat here and said, to be a better investor, you need to buy low and sell high. Yes, of course. But it is intriguing that our natural psychology inclines us to do precisely the opposite. That's very interesting. How can we retrain our investment brains, if you like, so that we don't fall into these very common traps? Understanding our own proclivities is the first step, and then setting up frameworks for our decision-making that um, are designed to adjust those. So it's about drafting for yourself a set of rules that govern your own likely emotional interventions in your decision-making. And then over time, practice, 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 turning those, those rules into habits. And I'll give you just one simple example from how I manage my own personal portfolio. I have a rule for myself that I never make investment decisions during the week, only on the weekends. And you might think that sounds strange because surely I miss out on some good opportunities. Well, yes, possibly, but it's not my day job to watch the markets minute by minute. And yet I work in a bank and I'm surrounded by other people's screens. And if I allow myself to make decisions during the week, there's a grave danger that I will make decisions in an uninformed way, driven more by emotion than by reason. So by just putting that in place, that simple rule, I eliminate a vast amount of uh, the emotional component of my decision making and thereby ensure that my own inclination to grab the marshmallow is somewhat diminished in my decision making. Thank you very much. That was Greg Davis, Head of Behavioural Finance at Barclays Wealth. We're always keen to hear your views. Do drop us an email. The address is money at On to our final item for today. Almost two-thirds of adults in the UK die without making a will, a condition termed dying intestate. Of those that do make a will, a third never update it, often blissfully unaware that something like marriage, including remarriage, renders a will null and void. The rules for dividing up assets in the event of intestacy are laid down by the state, and they're about to change. From October the 1st, widows will enjoy enhanced rights at the expense of dependent children and other relatives, while the rights of adopted and stepchildren will also be enhanced. Adam Palin has been looking at what the changes might mean. Adam, let's start with the situation of a widow. Uh, what is changing there? Okay, well, these changes only really will affect estates worth over £250,000. Now, for widows that don't have any children, it's very straightforward. From now on, they are going to inherit all of the estate left by their husband or wife, unless there's a will to state otherwise. Under existing intestacy rules, where there are no children, they inherit the first £450,000 plus half the balance, and the other half goes to blood relatives in an order determined by the default laws, starting with parents, siblings. Now, where there are children, it's slightly more complicated. However, again, the widow will, from now on, receive more of the estate where there's no will. Until now, the widow will inherit the first £250,000, 
but above that they will only have an income interest in the balance. The rest, beyond £250,000, goes to any sons and daughters of the deceased. So in the case where there's very large estates, potentially worth many millions of pounds, where there's not a will, the sons and daughters will inherit a great deal more. It gives an awful lot of power to the children, who may be quite young or may indeed not be the child of the widow. From now on, the widow will receive the first £250,000, but then half the remaining assets, the other half shared equally among all the children. Talking of of stepchildren, and indeed for that matter, uh, adopted children, some changes are in the pipeline there as well, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. The uh, existing rules don't really offer children who aren't uh, direct blood relations very much by way of financial support. So birth children who were, for example, adopted before the age of 18 would not have had a claim on their father or mother's estate under intestacy laws. Now, this is being corrected, and also stepchildren, whose parents were not married, they will now be able to make a claim on the estate under the Inheritance Act 1975, uh, which they weren't previously allowed to do. It was only allowed when there was a marriage or civil partnership. The rules regarding personal chattels uh, are also set to change. Um, That sounds like one of these very quaint uh, legal terms. What actually are chattels in this context and what's changing? Yeah, well, a lawyer this week described them as um, mad and pretty archaic. uh, And she gave me examples such as horses and and linens. Now, these chattels have, have been updated, the definition that is, to basically anything that is not a financial asset. So money wouldn't qualify. Uh, any investments wouldn't. But there's a bit of a grey area, such as art or maybe wine collections. But the reason this matters is that personal effects are not included as part of someone's estate for the, the purposes of intestacy, and they go straight to the surviving spouse or civil partner. And finally, one of the most common misconceptions around intestacy concerns the situation of so-called common law spouses. This is where people uh, live together but aren't actually married. What actually is their status in law and is it changing as a result of these reforms? Well, you're absolutely right. One of the uh, the largest misconceptions is that couples who've been living together for, for decades, they may own a house together, they may have children. Uh, the misconception that they, they would stand to uh, inherit money from the estate of if their partner did die without making a will. Um, Unfortunately for those individuals, under law, they do not have any claim, even on the remaining half of of shared savings, for example. Now, this is not changing as part of the reforms that are effective on the 1st of October, and they will continue to have no entitlement where there's no will. Thank you very much, Adam. Needless to say, changes to the intestacy regime in no way remove the need to make a proper will. Doing so should not cost more than a few hundred pounds and will save your descendants untold hassle and stress. There's a guide to making a will on the how-to section of our website at ft.com forward slash money. There's just time to tell you a bit more about this weekend's paper. We look at exchange-traded funds as news breaks of a regulatory investigation in the US. We've more on why so-called in-specie transfers of shares and funds between platforms take so long. And my column looks at why estate agency could be about to get a great deal cheaper. The Money Show will be back next week, but for now it's goodbye from me, James, Adam and our special guest, Greg Davis. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.